fourth chapter of Joshua. <clears throat> this morning we ended Romans, and um, I think here in two weeks we'll start on Sunday mornings we'll start a series through Luke and Acts, which I think are part one and part two of the same. It's the same author. It's, it's uh, Acts is the continuation of Luke. It's uh, that'll take some time, but. Uh, I just was thinking, my, my gentleman that used to be my favorite pastor, things change over time and what you think and all that, and so he's not really my favorite anymore, but I still am very thankful for him. And um, When John Piper preached Romans at his church, it was an eight-year series. Um, and he, he did that after being there for 20 years. So maybe they were they were used to that and ready for that, but Luke and Acts are not going to take eight years. Uh, they're not going to take anything close to that, but um, I'm excited to get that started. But here we're in Joshua chapter 10, still making our way through here. Joshua chapters 9 through 11 are basically one connected unit of information. I know we looked at 9, 1 through 27 last week. That was a picture of Israel without the wisdom of the Lord. Chapter 10, really chapter 11, outlined for us the southern campaign uh, through which Israel completely devastates this southern region of Canaan. The next few chapters are going to focus on the conquest almost exclusively. Actually, chapter 11 really begins the northern campaign. But it, it is a scorched earth policy for Israel from our covenant Lord Yahweh. The issue before us tonight and in these next few chapters isn't so much what is happening. It's history. It actually happened. But what these events reveal about our God. Throughout the conquest of Canaan and Israel's destruction of God's and her own enemies, God continues to reveal through that how committed He is to His promises. And, and while it's, it's sometimes we get focused on things like this eradication of the people of Canaan and we, we think, you know, is the Lord... Or, 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 you know, folks that don't believe or that, that have issues with Scripture, they, they point to, you know, that this campaign through Canaan, they talk about how awful it was and how cruel God is and um, how cruel it was of His people to do this. But the flip side of it is, how much must God love His own people? How committed must God be to His own people that He would do this for them so that they would have this place to call their own? That's the other side of it. That's another thing to consider. And so tonight... Really, the center of chapter 10 is this prayer from Joshua and what happens there. But God's usual way of reassuring His children that He's with them, He's with us, is not by giving us new knowledge that we never had before, but by reaffirming what He's already said to us and already told us. So let me pray and we'll look at the passage. Our Father, we thank You this night for Your Word and that You've enabled us to gather under it, Lord. We submit to You in it. We believe You in it. And God, I pray that You would soften our hearts to hear what You have to say to us tonight through Joshua 10, what You've been saying to Your people throughout the history of the church. And so, Lord, be with us. Please help me speak. Help me be clear and concise for the sake of understanding and help all to be able to grasp these things and believe them and understand the value they have for their own heart. We ask and pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So picking it up in chapter 10, verse 1. 
As soon as Adoni Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. So Adoni Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoam, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Deber, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to help me, or come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. You really can't blame Adoni Zedek for his disappointment and his fear once you remember that the location of Gibeon was actually among four other Canaanite cities and would have included them back in chapter 9, verse 17. These four towns, Gibeon, Shephira, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim, formed a confederation of which now subjugated Gibeon had been a part of. In fact, given what the text says here, Gibeon must have been the dominant city of this four-part little cluster here. The traditional placement of Gibeon puts it about six miles north-northwest of Jerusalem. So Gibeon guarded the eastern end of the way of Beth Horon, which was this very important road between Jerusalem and Ahalon to the west. It was a junction also for many other local roads. Shephira was five miles west of Gibeon. It was up on a plateau, so it could monitor approaches to Gibeon from the west. Kiriath-Jerim was uh, two miles south of Shephira and six miles southwest of Gibeon on the road from Judah to Beth Shemesh and Timnah, which were both in the Sorek Valley. There's really no consensus historically on where Beeroth was, but it could have been, probably was about two miles south of Gibeon by this place, or associated with this place called Kirbet el Burj, but we don't really know. Now, that's great, Tony, thanks. Why do we care about geography here, right? Because it helps us understand why Adoni Zedek is so upset when he looks at his map. Canaan is in trouble here, at least the southern part of Canaan is in trouble. He knew Israel had already knocked off Jericho and Ai to the east, and now the Gibeonites, which we understand really meant an entire region here in the center and the west, have made peace with Israel. So there's now this, geographically speaking, this rectangle of four key sites that are now under Joshua's control. Along with Israel's defeat of Jericho and Ai, this meant Israel had control of this strategic central plateau which, by the way, would later belong to the tribe of Benjamin, all of it, Joshua would cut a nice little piece out for Israel right across the midsection of Canaan. They're bleeding, right, from the middle. There's now this wedge between the north and the south of Israel right there. And once again, we see the kings of Canaan trying to mount some defensive against the people of God. Israel now faces its largest opposing force since entering Canaan. There are five Canaanite tribes mustering their forces. They've encamped against Gibeon, and they're making war against it. Is Israel up to this task? No, they aren't. Of course not. But Yahweh 
is. And he is her God. So we pick it up in verse 8. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. And as they fled before Israel, which they were going down, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. It's interesting that God also will honor the covenant Israel has made with Gibeon. They are among His people now. And Yahweh shows Himself once more to be the true warrior of Israel in these verses. Adoni Zedek had sent for his, you know, his, his pagan cronies to come up and help him destroy Gibeon for their treachery against them by joining with Israel. In verses 6 and 7, the Gibeonites had sent for Joshua to come up and help them against these Amorite kings who now hate them. But notice what is being said in verses 8 and 9. In verse 8, Yahweh assures Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. This is precisely what God had already said to Joshua back in chapter 1, verse 5, before the conquest of Canaan ever began. Here God repeats it, the same promise. Beloved, this is the usual way God uses to reassure His children of His promises, not by revealing some new truth that we previously didn't know, but by reaffirming promises that have already been given. And notice, when God reaffirms a promise previously made, it takes on fresh power for its recipients because of how it meets their immediate need, this promise they already have. We don't really, we don't need new truth. We always need to understand how the promises God has already made affect our present situations in life. Everything God has promised us can be applied to what we're going through now, today, in our lives. Look there in verse 9 and how God's assurance from verse 8 doesn't bypass human ingenuity, doesn't do away with human strategy. It encourages it. Now that God is with them, they're filled with confidence. They're filled with courage. They march up all night. They attack. They come up with this great plan of a surprise attack. God's comfort causes our action. Now we can go. God is with us. He's made promises. So God has promised victory in verse 8, but the means by which He'll achieve it in verse 9 is this night march and a surprise attack, probably while it was still dark. Our God is sovereign. Again, that doesn't eliminate human means. It incorporates them to achieve God's purpose. The sovereign God works through means to accomplish His will. Now, we have this amazing picture of Yahweh as the divine warrior in verses 10 and 11. The modern translations, at least like mine, what I read from the ESV, it kind of skews this a little bit, unfortunately, but there are four verbs in verse 10, and God is clearly the subject of the first. The Lord threw them into a panic. Unfortunately, the way this is translated in the version I use makes Israel at least look like the subject of the next three verbs, but God is still the subject. He's still the one doing the work. It might be Strange to think of God pursuing the enemy, for example. But that's the whole point, I think. I think the author wants us, wanted Israel when they 
read these words to picture God as this fighter. He is the warrior. He is the one crushing the enemy. In verse 11, the Hebrew verb is emphatic. That the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them. The author wants us to know that God is responsible here for this victory He wins through His people. And He wants us to picture God from heaven, from His throne on high, hurling these stones, these hailstones down on the Amalekites. It's an amazing thing. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. In other words, God killed more people than the Israelites did. That's what we're reading here. This is God's conquest. When God promised this land to Israel, He put Himself on the line to be the one who would conquer it for them. They only needed to depend on Him and listen to what He said. The source and cause of Israel's victory is the Lord Himself who is actively engaged in this fight. That's how the author wants us to see Him. The Lord is literally fighting here. He is the warrior who defeats the foe. Israel can't miss that. So our God is not passive, nor is God a pacifist. God is relentless about keeping His promises. He will go to any length, stopping short only of denying Himself to grant what He promises to His people. This is the warrior God who will become flesh to lay down His own life voluntarily for the forgiveness and righteousness of His people. So, when it comes time for salvation to be purchased once and for all, God doesn't recruit. He volunteers. And don't lose sight of how ferocious God can be in order to keep His promises. Don't lose sight of God or of His Son Jesus Christ as the warrior who fights for His people. And again, that may not fit um, with, with what is usually the kind of contemporarily preferred vision of God, especially of His Son as this soft, sentimental, graven image. That's how we want Him to be, so that's how we create Him to fit with the spirit of the age. The imagery here of God fighting is way too violent for that image. So we, it gets lost in our memory. It gets lost in our knowledge. But this is who God is for His people. He will fight for you, literally. One commentator says of this text, the popular image of Jesus is that He is not only kind and tender, yes, but also soft and prissy, as though Jesus comes to us reeking of hand cream. I love that. That's hilarious. No, God reveals Himself as one who can save. And in order to bring peace, sometimes you have to make war. In order to save, sometimes you have to do violent things. My family and I saw uh, Sound of Freedom last night. A new movie about the sex trade and the trafficking of children in particular. And Again, thank God that there are men who can do violent things. I'm not thankful for violence. But in a fallen world, if there aren't men who can fight and be men, it's not that men are, are, it's machismo or something. No, there are children that need rescue. And sometimes if somebody's hand is around somebody else's neck, you need a stronger hand to pry it loose. And, and clearly God is not, God is not against violence categorically. Sometimes it serves His purpose. We need to submit to that. We need to accept that. That's 
notice that God never runs from what He does or what He says, ever. God isn't like somewhere in Joshua trying to explain why this was okay for Him to hurl down hailstones on these people, for Him to pursue these people. God never stops and says, here's why it was okay for me to do that. Here's why it's all right. Let, let me explain it away until the reasons make sense to our ears. That's kind of the whole point. God is completely other. God cannot do evil. Therefore, this isn't evil. Right? This is God acting. And He's not only destroying, He's saving. He's saving. God reveals Himself as one who can save. Savior, save from things that the saved can't save themselves from. That's why we need a Savior. A soft Jesus might be nice for certain situations. He's not going to steal your soul against the daily assaults of the enemy. But the real Jesus can, and He does. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty in battle. Psalm 24, 8. Don't lose sight of Jesus, the Jesus of the New Testament, seated on a white horse one day, faithful and true, judging and making war. Revelation 19, 11-16 is that whole picture there. He will literally scorch the earth for us one day, beloved. Literally. So let us be about the proclamation of the Gospel. But this was just a preview of the links to which God will go to keep His promises to His people. Mild, soft Jesus that doesn't like to get His hands dirty can't help anybody. And He won't give anybody hope. But it's only as we know God as He has revealed Himself here as the warrior of Israel who fights for them. And in salvation, complete, fights completely without us that we have hope of triumphing on our sojourn through this world, beloved. This God that fights. Verse 12. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites. I said Amalekites earlier. That's my fault. I meant the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Tony, you really believe that there's a day in history that the sun literally stopped? Absolutely, I believe that. Absolutely. This is an absolute miracle of prayer. Part of what's happening here is, is God revealing to us, look at how committed He is to the victory of His people. He will literally stop the sun and the moon. Literally. This text is describing an actual historic occurrence. I, I, I couldn't find it. I didn't think of it until just now. But I think in charts you can actually track it back on like, and, and see that there was a, there's a period there where there's like a missing day or something. It's, it's amazing. The prayer of Joshua actually moves time and space here. There are two views here. I'm not going to get too much into it because I, I really I don't think it matters. It's just kind of interesting. One is the one view is that Joshua asked, is asking for an extension of daylight 
to make the most of the victory. I think that's what's happening. But the second one, which I hadn't read much about, is that Joshua asked for an extension of darkness, actually, for the same reason. The difference comes when, when you identify precisely or ask, okay, what exactly was God was Joshua asking God to do? Which activity of the sun and moon is Joshua asking God to keep from happening? Does Joshua want God to stop the movement, or does he want to stop them from shining? Again, I don't think it makes too much difference. It probably isn't necessary detail for a sermon. It's just a little fun to tease out. But the important thing here is the miracle of this prayer. This is God. This is what He's willing to do for His people. The writer says in verse 14, There hasn't been a day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man for, for the Lord fought for Israel. That's why He heeded the voice of a man. Listen to it. The amazing thing that happened that day then is not that some is not an unusual spell of light or darkness. Of course God can do that. He made these things. They answer to Him. The amazing thing is that Yahweh listened to the prayer of a man to do that, of a human being. Now does that mean is does this mean that God has never answered a prayer before or since? Absolutely not. That, that's not the Clearly it doesn't mean that. We know that's not true. What it does mean in context is that never before or since has God interrupted the created order He established in the beginning because a human being asked. These elements are only under God's control. Now man can and does manipulate these things, or at least tries to, but only God actually controls them. In fact, I don't... Christian, don't fear what nature will do or might do. God is Lord over nature. If you're asking me what man is willing to do to manipulate nature, that's very concerning to me, but that's not really the issue. You know, the climate has always been changing. Remember that it used to be called global warming? Now it's climate change. You know, I, things like that can be weaponized. That's scary, I suppose. But God will not, cannot lose control of nature. Unless God ordains that be the way the the world ends, then the world is not going to end that way. And He didn't say that's how the world was going to end. Oh, the climate's going to change. God is going to heat it up big time when His sun cuts through the clouds one day. But God won't lose control of nature. Nothing will bring an end to humanity as we know it other than the work of Almighty God when His Son returns to deny that. There's a reason the world denies that. Because we want to be in control. We want to be able to tell the future. We want to be able to stop what's coming. We aren't God. We aren't gods. Right? So we don't fear nature. Don't fear nature. Right? God will not depart from His fixed order until the appointed time of the end when He recreates the heavens and the new earth on the ashes of the current one. Now, the question is, when will God interrupt the fixed order? When will God do something He's never done before or since? When it means fighting for His people in verse 14. God will literally stop and or move heaven and earth to win the battle for His children. The amazing thing is is that when you remember this era was temporary, it was a shadow and type of Christ who was to come, It was still real. It's still literal history. It's real people. It actually happened. I'm not 
I don't mean to imply that at all. These are real events. But in God's design, these things were not the end of all things. This God is working out a plan here to bring His Son into the world. So God is willing to do this much when the era He's in is temporary. Think about that for a moment. God will do this when the era in which it's happening is a shadow and type of an era to come. Making the sun stand still is very small potatoes compared to when God fought our greatest battle for us. And that, for that, He didn't, by His words, stop the sun and the moon. He Himself stepped into human history and into a human body in the person of His Son to purchase our forgiveness and to gift us our righteousness. God will scorch the whole universe to save His children. Oh, how He loves us. How He loves us. So, this confederation constructed by Adoni Zedek to overrun Gibeon and Israel along with him has utterly failed because God fought for Israel and our enemies have been routed. So we pick it up in verse 16. These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Makeda, and it was told to Joshua, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Makeda. And Joshua said, Roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them, but do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies. Attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities, for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Makeda. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so and brought those five kings out to him from the cave. The king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward Joshua struck them and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees, and they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves, and they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remains to this very day. God gives, at, at the time of the writing of Joshua, God gives Israel a clear sign, a tangible and visible sign of His victory. God gave Israel reason after reason to believe His Word and never doubt it. Verses 28-43, to they'll go on to talk about the southern campaign as a whole. These verses, though, they're focusing squarely on the battle of Beth Horon in verses 1-15. to the five kings were the ringleaders of this assault. They hide in a cave. Israel traps them, hems them in so they can't escape, while the rest of the army capitalizes on the route that began at Beth Horon. When they return to Makeda, Joshua orders the five kings brought out of the cave. I'm sure that was a very nice walk back to Joshua. Then he has Israel's military chiefs come near, put their feet on the necks of these kings in verse 24. This isn't gloating. 
It isn't barbaric. It's not macho. It's not so they look tough. That would be very ungodly. It's almost a sacrament. It's, it's almost this visible means of God's grace. Look, look, at, look at verse 25 again. And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. This is a sign of what God will do that Israel needed to see. This is for their faith. It's not for bragging rights. That's not what God is doing here. This is an enacted parable to show how Yahweh would place all their enemies beneath them. It's going to be like this. God had made a promise and God was going to keep it. Look at this, he's saying. The symbolic action is visible encouragement for the people. Now, how do symbolic actions reassure faith? Because they come from God. If God says, I'm in this for you, my promise, it's in this for you, then it is. If God says, in this event of, of you just putting your feet on, how long did that take? Just putting your feet on these five kings. If God says, this is a picture of what I'm going to do in this whole campaign for you, then He is there. His Word is there. He's present in it. He means for them to look at that and be encouraged and have faith. See, God isn't about being cruel to people that reject Him. He's about saving and delivering and fighting for His own people. To be placed in eternal condemnation is ultimately your own choice. It's not really the heart of God. It's not why He created hell for people. He created it for the devil and his angels. This is a sign of what God will do that Israel needed to see. So these things are not for skeptics who doubt that God can work through such natural things, such earthly things. Things like this, signs God gives are for believers who will take whatever they can get when their God gives it to them, knowing how much they need tangible proof of what God is going to do if He's going to provide it. Beloved, that's what the cross is. That's one of the things the cross is. It's tangible proof. That happened in history on a day. Jesus hung on a literal wooden tree. It's not too far beyond the realm of possibility to say that every time you see a tree, every time you see wood like that in the world, remember that on that Christ was given for you. Literally. His body hung on it. His blood poured out on it. On a wooden cross. And just notice how the encouragement Joshua gives in verse 25 is precisely what he had received from God way back in one night. Don't be afraid. Be strong and courageous. What is Joshua doing? He's passing on the word that he had heard in a visible sign for his people. This is a pattern from God, just as God does today. In baptism, in the Lord's Supper, in the Gospel, Jesus has said, I am there with you. We need all the help we can get in order to not lose our faith. And God keeps giving it. He sets it in stone in these markers of our faith. 
picking it up in verse 28. As for Makeda, Joshua captured it on that day and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining. And he did to the king of Makeda just as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Makeda to Libna and fought against Libna. And the Lord gave it also and its king into the hand of Israel. And he struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it. He left none remaining in it. And he did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Libna to Lachish and laid siege to it and fought against it. And the Lord gave Lachish into the hand of Israel and he captured it on the second day and struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it as he had done to Libna. Then Oram king of Gezer came up to help Lachish and Joshua struck him and his people until he left none remaining. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Lachish to Eglon and they laid siege to it and fought against it. And they captured it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword. And he devoted every person in it to destruction that day as he had done to Lachish. Then Joshua and all Israel with him went up from Eglon to Hebron. And they fought against it and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword. And its king and its towns and every person in it. He left none remaining as he had done to Eglon and devoted it to destruction and every person in it. Then Joshua and all Israel with him turned back to Debir and fought against it. And he captured it with its king and all its towns. And they struck them with the edge of the sword and devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining, just as he had done to Hebron and to Libna and its king. So he did to Debir and to its king. So Joshua struck the whole land, the whole country and the Negev and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings in their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Scorched earth in Canaan, beloved. Canaan is getting routed and cleared for God's people because God keeps giving the victory. Verses 28 through 39 single out six towns. Joshua and Israel attacked and decimated in battle. Verses 40 and 41 summarize the campaign for us and the geographical limits of it so far. Now, if you if you know your Old Testament really well, it's a little weird because it seems so decisive here and complete. But later, when we get to Judges 1, there's all this territory, even in this region, that remains unconquered or by that time is unconquered. But in verse 43, when Joshua returns to Gilgal after this southern campaign, it appears he has no intention to stay there. Right? They're not going to stay there. Israel, it's, it's a camp in Gilgal. Israel will soon leave this region. And when they leave, they're probably going to lose control of many of these sites. The point is that the backbone of Canaanite power in this area is broken. The point has been made. If the Lord of Israel fights for them, we are going to get cleaned out and decimated and destroyed never to rise up again the way the phrase is structured in Hebrew in verse 42 shows that the text isn't really saying Joshua took the land all at one time but that he took it once meaning later battles are probably still going to be required and they were we see it but the emphasis in this chapter is on the fact that Joshua took the land or the city that's in verse 28 32 35 37, 39, and 42. 
that's a different verb. When, when Joshua took, that's a different verb than one for drive out completely. So that's not what happened. In Hebrew, when things were lakhared, meaning taken, they could still cause trouble later. When things were yarashed, the destruction was total, as in Jericho, for example. Jericho is done. This is also the Lord's doing. Let it be marvelous in our eyes. God will scorch the earth to save His people. God will clear out everything and everyone in the way of His people's salvation. He fights for them. When God sent His Son to become our salvation through His life, death, resurrection, and ascension, He was conquering every actual and possible enemy that you and I have. He routed sin and death and hell and the grave. We still struggle with sin. We still struggle with death. We still struggle with the world and the poles and the temptations against our faith. But the earth has been scorched by God's salvation. All our enemies now are on borrowed time. I still wrestle with sin. You still wrestle with sin. But its back has been broken. The venom has come out, has been pulled out of the serpent's fangs for you and I. We're not meant to find a paradigm for politics here or for a way to govern. That's not what's happening here. We're meant to understand in this conquest that when God makes a promise, when He commits Himself to saving and making a people His own, He will sometimes literally move heaven and earth to do it. So, I ask this to you. If this God is for us, indeed, who can be against us? 